Again, some will determine that brothers are legally rigid and, and, and they just should be written off. And others who exercise certain freedoms, Christians will call worldly, when they may not be worldly at all. And so we need to ask, what does the Word of God say? What are the principles that God has given us? This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Berugi, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in an ongoing study of the book of Romans, and today we move into chapter 14, a fascinating study that addresses a number of issues that Christians often debate and sometimes divide over. What is going into the realm of legalism and what is entering the realm of license? This chapter deals with doubtful things. So let's join Dr. Brogy as he begins a message entitled, Gray Areas. Take the Word of God this morning, if you will, and turn to Romans chapter 14. We come to a fascinating chapter of Scripture that opens up a host of issues that Christians often debate and sometimes divide over. The chapter deals with doubtful things or what sometimes we refer to as gray areas and how one understands or does not understand some of the principles that are taught in this chapter will determine how gray or how black and white you may view certain issues. Romans 14 will help us in dealing with those things that are pleasing to God. There are some things that Christians are doing today that they think they have the freedom to do, but it displeases the Lord. And so we need to understand what are the principles that govern our behavior on those issues not addressed in Scripture. And if you want to get into a good old-fashioned red-hot discussion, a good argument, then just talk about places you can go, things that you can wear, things that you think you can do that are not addressed in Scripture, and you're going to find Christians who divide. And if the principles are not understood, we'll not grow as we should and we'll not be able to disciple those whom God has entrusted to us. Now, let me run you into the context. One of my desires is that whenever I teach a book of the Bible, by the time we are finished, you'll be able to think your way through the entire book. And certainly Romans, which is the constitution of Christianity, if there's one book in the whole Bible, you should know inside and out, back to front, it's the book of Romans. If you read it over and over and over again, you'll discover there are three major divisions. In chapters 1 through 8, he deals with God's righteousness revealed. The righteousness of God is the theme of Romans, and in the first eight chapters, he manifests how it is uncovered. How is it that a righteous God can take an unrighteous, hell-bound sinner and put him in a righteous standing before him without violating his righteousness? That's what Romans 1 through 8 covers. It's the doctrinal section. Three major doctrines are unfolded. When you come to chapter 9, you turn a corner where God's righteousness is vindicated. It's defended. It's proved. It's not a parenthesis in the book of Romans. At the end of chapter 8, he affirms that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so when you open the ninth chapter, you find the sad description of Israel's unbelief and rebellion. Well, if nothing can separate us from God's love, and as Jeremiah and Deuteronomy said that God loved Israel with an everlasting love, if God made some promises to Israel that are unconditional in nature, then why does it appear that God has abandoned Israel? And Paul reminds us, no, God has not abandoned Israel. It was Israel who abandoned God. God elected Israel. 
God is living in rejection, but someday God will restore Israel. It's the national section of the book. Now turn back from where you are just a couple pages to the left to chapter 12 and verse 1. Notice the very first word in chapter 12. It is the word, therefore. That signals you that a new section is opening. And in the 12th through the 16th chapters, we find God's righteousness applied. He takes the great doctrines, the great uh, prophecies, the great issues of the faith, and he begins to apply it. Now, that's not to say that theology and doctrine and prophecy are not applicable all by themselves, because they are, because theology gives you a knowledge of God. Prophecy gives you something about the ways of God. Doctrine or teaching helps you to understand God's purpose, so you understand something about God's character when you study the eighth chapters, the first eight chapters. But with that said, he takes all 11 chapters and beginning in 12, one, he begins to unfold them in everyday life. Now with each section, if you remember, I gave you three key words that summarize the section. So when you come to the practical section, chapters 12 through 16, three words over chapter 12, I hope by now you've written the word bond. That's the theme of the 12th chapter. In the first two verses, he speaks of our bond to God as living sacrifices. Beginning in verses 3 through 16, as it relates to the subject of spiritual gifts, he speaks of our bond to one another, bond to other believers. And then in verses 17 to 21, he deals with our bond to the world. When you come to chapter 13, you should have written over that chapter by now the word behavior. In the first seven verses, he deals with our behavior to the government. Beginning in verse 8 through 10, he begins with our behavior to our neighbor. And then he closes the chapter, verses 11 to 14, with our behavior to ourself. Then when you come to the 14th chapter, he deals with brothers. And so you should have over chapter 14 the word brothers. He begins with brothers who are weak. In the first half, he will deal in the second half with brothers who are strong. Well, first in 14, brothers who are weak. And then in 15, brothers who are strong. And if you were here for the opening message going on three years now, you will remember that the 16th chapter is the conclusion to this great epistle. So that's where we are this morning. Now, it's going to take us several weeks to get through the 14th chapter. Today, we're going to lay the foundation But what we cover in these next few weeks are critically important and very important to how you live the Christian life. Let's begin by reading our passage. Today, we're going to look at just the first six verses. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who, does, who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Now, there are issues that Christians argue over, issues that are not specifically spelled out in Scripture. And many times denominations divide over these issues, sometimes churches, 
Sometimes from country to country, you will see how different things are to be understood. Some people in America still believe it's sin for a woman to wear makeup. I believe it's a sin for a lot of women not to wear makeup. In some countries, like I, were, like I was last week in Eastern Europe, they would, many, say that it's sinful for a woman to wear makeup and for a woman to wear a wedding band, though not typically for a man. But for a woman to wear a wedding band, they would say, well, it's worldly. Well, in our culture, we might think if a woman's married and she doesn't have on her wedding band, it's scandalous. If you go to Great Britain... They would take great offense for you to play soccer on the Lord's Day on Sunday, where in America, we might use it as an evangelical outreach to the unchurched. I've met some Christians, a growing number of Christians, who have no problem smoking a cigar or a pipe, and others would find it reprehensible. When I was a new Christian in the mid-1970s, believers would divide over things like whether it was right or wrong to cut your grass on Sunday, whether it was okay to be a member of a dance club or whether you could golf, hunt, or fish on the Lord's Day. Today, most churches have thrown standards out the window. The church, if, is, if they're guilty of anything, they're guilty today of license. But still, these are important issues, and they have divided Christian people, and they continue to divide Christian people, and they certainly divided Christians in the first century. And so in this chapter of Scripture, they debated over things that you should eat or should not eat, or whether Saturday, Sabbath, was still sacred. And these caused divisions. And some of God's people were ignorant, and they needed to be educated biblically so that they could make wise choices and opinions. Again, he is dealing in this issue not with things that God has spelled out in black and white but with issues that are not addressed in the Word of God, what verse 1 refers to as opinions, or what sometimes we call doubtful things or gray areas. And one of the most difficult things for some new Christians to discover in the Christian life is that God doesn't spell it all out. And so if you don't understand the biblical standards, then you don't know what to do. But God is wise not to spell every issue out, because with history, with time, there are technologies and things that are introduced into the world that didn't exist when the first century was writing the new, first century saints were writing the New Testament. And so God gave timeless principles for us to understand. I suppose at the extreme end, you have license, and at the other end, you have legalism. Some years ago, my family and I, on the way to visit my parents up north, we, we stopped in the Amish country there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And we observed people who thought it was wrong to drive an automobile, and so they would have a horse and buggy. Some of the Amish would debate over their wheelbarrows, whether it was okay to use a rubber wheelbarrow or a wheel that had a wooden wheel. And sometimes they marked you as worldly or more spiritual the kind of wheel you had. Most all of them didn't use electricity because to be connected to the world through electricity was to be worldly in their minds. And so while they would sit in their homes at night with their kerosene lanterns, all the while they would draw their income from growing uh, cigar tobacco in their fields. So how do you sort out these issues? Why do Christians divide over them? Again, some will determine that brothers are legally rigid and, and, and they just should be written off. And others who exercise certain freedoms, Christians will call worldly when they may not be worldly at all. 
And so we need to ask, what does the Word of God say? What are the principles that God has given us? Now, again, this is going to take us at least three one-hour sessions. And if you're here for the first time, yes, I preach for an hour. (laughs) Sorry. But I hope you will enjoy it and the time will go by fast for you. But today I want to uncover two overarching principles that will help you to sort it all out. Uh, If you're using your note-taking outline, I'll give you the answers right off so you won't be distracted. We're going to focus first on guarding our attitudes, and then we're going to focus on guarding our actions. So let's first talk about guarding our attitudes. It's really important that we consider the background of the discussion or we'll never be able to make proper application. And so there are two primary issues that Christians in the first century fought over, the issue of diets and the issue of days, both of which are covered in this chapter. The issue of diets is what is behind verse 2. Notice, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So in the first century church, there were those Christians who had no problem eating meat, and there were others who were vegetarians. So one man said, please pass the ham biscuits, and another man says, I'm a vegetarian, please pass the broccoli. And so why was there debate over whether to eat meat or to eat vegetables only? Why was this even an issue? Well, there are two primary concerns behind whether to eat meat or not. One was the issue of contaminated versus uncontaminated meat. And the other was the issue of clean versus unclean meat. Now, 1 Corinthians 8 deals with the subject of contaminated versus uncontaminated meat. But let me just share some background for both passages. If you lived in the first century, of course, there was no refrigeration. So sometimes you salted your meat, but very often you bought your meat as you had need. And like any good consumer, you would want to buy the best meat at the best price. And many times the meat that was in abundance and that was of the highest quality was meat that was sold at pagan worship temples. A man would go to his pagan temple If he was a pious worshiper, he wouldn't bring his uh, second best animal, but his primary, his very best, and a portion would be offered in sacrifice, and the rest would be sold in the meat market behind it. And it was excellent meat. And because it was so plentiful, it was sold at a much cheaper price. And some Christians would say, this meat is contaminated. This meat came from an idol-worshiping temple. It may even have a demon in it. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. But the Christian buying it would say, look, there's no such thing as an idol. The meat has not been affected, and we're supposed to be good stewards of God's money. It's the best meat at the best price. It will free up more of my funds to give to the cause of Christ and to missions. And so this was an issue of contaminated versus uncontaminated meat. But beyond that, there was the issue of clean versus unclean meats. You see, under the old covenant, there were certain meats that God specifically said were unclean and that the Jewish people or proselytes, Gentiles who were converted to Judaism, were not to eat under any circumstances. You might want to write out in the margin of your Bible next to verse 14, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. And so, for instance, there were certain scavengers Uh, that did not have fins or did not have scales like shrimp and lobster and clams and oysters. Some of you are drooling over such things. God says, no, you can't eat those. There were those that did not have scales like eels, and God said they were unclean. Unclean animals that had paws, 
like dogs, which they eat in the Philippines, or cats. God said, don't eat. Uh, They were considered unclean. Insects were not to be eaten. They were all considered unclean with the exception of locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers. Animals that had to chew the cud and had a divided hoof, if they did not do both, it was considered unclean. Like a pig or a camel, you did not eat it, or a rabbit. Uh, So why did God designate them as unclean? What was the thought behind it? Well, three positions have been taken in the history of the church. Seventh-day Adventists argue that God forbade these things for hygienic reasons. And of course, today they still follow the clean and unclean meat laws of the Old Testament. They would say, well, pork can be a source of uh, trigonosis, and the rabbit, for instance, can carry tulamaria, and so you shouldn't eat these things, and God was warning us not to eat them. Well, that's interesting, and there's certainly truth behind both of those statements concerning disease that they can take, but that is certainly not a reason that God gives. He doesn't spell that out as a reason. Not to mention, as we will see when you come to the New Testament, in passages like Mark 7 or Acts 10, God declares all meats clean and permissible for his people to eat. A second explanation that some have given is that clean and unclean animals were symbolic of good and evil in the human realm. And so those animals, for instance, that chewed the cud were considered clean. Uh, why? Because, well, they, they would say symbolically, it pictures a Christian that meditates on the Word of God, which is a holy thing to do. In Psalm 1, God speaks about those who meditate on His law day and night. And the word that's used, the Hebrew word for meditate, is that word that describes a cow that chews its cud. And they'll say, well, in addition, sheep, they're considered clean. And they ought to be because our shepherd, the Lord Jesus, is pictured as the chief shepherd in God's people who have been saved and set apart and declared righteous, are also called sheep. Now, while that symbolic interpretation is interesting, there's no basis anywhere in the Word of God to interpret the Scriptures in that fashion. God, within the Old Testament and within the New Testament, gave us a model on how we are to understand and interpret the Scriptures. And this is important because you'll meet some people and they'll say, well, that's just your opinion. That's just your interpretation. Or they'll say, when you say, for instance, homosexuality is is sinful, they'll say, well, you just literally read the Bible and you shouldn't. Well, God, when He deals with His own Word, gives us a model on how to interpret it. For instance, Christ, when He looks back on an Old Testament passage, He gives us the principles by which we interpret it. The apostles, when they interface with the Old Testament, give us the principles by which we should interpret it. We call that hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. And you discover that God Himself tells us that we are to grammatically, historically, in the context, interpret the Scripture. And that's the way most of us interpret most things in life. When someone sends you a letter and they say, I'm coming to your house in three weeks, you don't come up with some symbolic interpretation what three weeks mean and what house stands for. You know, you just take it at face value. And so it is with language. God gave it to us to understand. A third explanation as to why there were clean and unclean meats is that God had them to set aside in a special way the people of Israel. That the Jewish people were distinguished, not just by their diet, but by their dress, by their 
kind of material they wore, the way they uh, dealt with their houses, uh, uh, their hairstyle, just a host of issues that God unfolds for us in the Old Testament. They made the Jewish people a peculiar people. It's like when you look at the Amish, Amish you say, they're, they're odd. They're really kind of different. They're very peculiar the way they live. Well, that's what it was like to look at a Jew in the first century. They were a peculiar people. And it was that differentness that became the platform in which they spoke about the living God and Messiah who would come. But please understand, under the new covenant... God's purity is not external. The way he distinguishes the people of God today is internally through a second birth. This is what the prophets had foretold. The prophet Ezekiel in the 36th chapter said, Moreover, thus saith the Lord, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now this was a promise if you read it in the context to the people of Israel. But because of their unbelief, when he came to his own, his own received him not, but as many as received them, Jew or Gentile alike, he has given this promise. And so Hebrews 10 tells us it can be fulfilled in a Gentile today. And someday it will be fulfilled in the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people as a nation are going to believe that Jesus is Lord. Jeremiah 31 in describing this new covenant said, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And how is this possible? He tells us, Because therefore I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's why he could say of John the Baptist, There was never a man greater than John born of a woman. But he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because John died before the fulfillment of the new covenant. It was not until Jesus in time and space secured our forgiveness, something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do, and ascended onto high. And just as the Father promised, he sent God the Holy Spirit to come and live in us. And so the way God distinguishes his people today is not externally, but internally. And Jesus was underscoring this in Mark chapter 7 when he said to the Pharisees, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside does not defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all foods clean. Christ in you is the hope of glory. He is our distinguishing mark. So this is the background behind the 14th chapter. Some thought, I'm afraid that most of the meat in our day is contaminated. It's not kosher. It's been demonized. And so I'm not going to have anything to do with it. I'm only going to eat vegetables. But other Christians said, no, the Lord Jesus himself, he declared all meats clean. I love a good steak. I love a good pork chop. And the best meat prices are down there at Pagan's Meat Market. And good stewardship would warrant that that's where I buy my food. So this is the discussion behind the statement here in verse 2. Look at your Bible. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So you have this brother 
with pork and shrimp on a skewer. His fellow Jewish brother comes to his home. He's grown up under the Old Testament law, and he has real trouble with this. And the Gentile brother who's been saved out of an idol-worshiping background, he too has trouble because he despises anything associated with a pagan temple where this product was bought. And so Jews and some Gentiles looked with a deep sense of contempt towards these brothers who exercise this freedom. And they said, in essence, how could you? And the believer eating his pork and shrimp skewer would say, I can eat because I'm free to eat in Christ. And so this is the first situation. It was an issue of diet. And so we have to ask the question, how are these brothers to respond to one another? Well, the answer is found back in verse 1. Look at it again. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. Major question, who is the Apostle Paul addressing? He's addressing the strong. He's addressing the meat eaters. He's addressing those people who purchased meat at Pagan's Meat Market who felt like they had the freedom to eat pork or anything else they wanted to eat. And he's saying to them, look, you meat eaters. Remember, not everyone feels the same way you feel. Not everyone in their conscience has the same liberty you have. So don't sit down next to them and talk about how good the pork chops were last night. Just keep your mouth shut. And so here in verse 1, he's addressing the strong about the weak. By the way, which camp was the Apostle Paul in? Was he strong or was he weak? Well, you would expect he was strong. And three times over in the passage, he identifies himself as such. Look at verse uh, 14 of this chapter. We'll come to it in a few weeks. I know, he said, and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Notice verse 20, he affirms it a second time. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. And then chapter 15 and verse 1, it opens again with this affirmation. Now we, he includes himself, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And so the ideal is to become strong in faith when dealing with those with a weaker conscience. Now, please understand at the outset, when Paul describes a weaker brother, he's not talking about someone who doesn't love the Lord. This person may be deeply in love in Christ, nor is he necessarily speaking of someone who is easily overcome by temptation. That's not what he means by a weaker brother. He's speaking about someone who does not have freedom in their conscience to do certain things. They lack a certain liberty. And so the ideal, as we will see, is to become strong in faith. But Christians don't grow up by force. They need to be nurtured. They need to be taught. They need to be brought along. No one grows into liberty by shaming them, by making fun of them. But unfortunately, the one who has liberty is not necessarily stronger because he's more mature. Maybe it's just because of the way he was raised. He was raised as a Gentile where he could eat any kind of thing. So when he came to Christ, it was a non-issue. And so his tendency might be to flaunt his liberty. And so Paul says to us here in verse 3, the one who eats has this freedom is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Now, the words regard with contempt is a single word in the original. It carries the idea of despising or putting down that Christian. The stronger brother is instructed not to get caught up in non-essentials that may cause a weaker brother to stumble. 
And tomorrow, when we continue our message entitled, Gray Areas, we'll look at some instructions Paul has for the weaker brother. To listen to this or any of the messages in the Roman series, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request program ROM65 on CD or DVD. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we continue our look at gray areas. Join us then as we search the scriptures.